Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and the Trump presidency. And before we start this episode, I'd like to draw everyone's attention to our new Not the New York Times offer, which we're offering to encourage readers to subscribe to The Spectator's US edition, which is excellent. I edit it. Uh, And the reason we're running the Not the New York Times offer is because we are very unlike the New York Times. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the famous newspaper, uh, the most famous newspaper that America has, recently hounded out one of its best editors uh, because the paper had published a slightly controversial article. Uh, The paper's staff, and bizarrely many of its readers, now demand total conformity of opinion in the opinion pages. We think that's very boring, and we want to tell America that The Spectator is different. We're a magazine, not a newspaper, and we take a very different approach to journalism. We've been around longer than The Times, in fact, 23 years longer to be precise, and we encourage our writers to disagree with each other. We want arguments and we want people to disagree. It makes for much better reading. We also try not to take ourselves too seriously, and unlike the grey lady, as the New York Times is known, we never confuse the serious with the dull. We're new to America and we want Americans to know what we're all about which is why we're offering this special Not the New York Times offer with 50% off the normal price. If you go to spectator.us forward slash not dash NYT dash and you enter the code N-O-T-N-Y-T, you will get 50% off the Spectator's US edition. Please take up the offer. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. I am Matt McDonald, the US managing editor of The Spectator, filling in for Freddie Gray, who is on holiday. I am here with Emily Larson, who is a political reporter for The Washington Examiner. Hello, Emily. Hello, Matt. And tonight we are midway through the 2020 Democratic National Convention. And we're going to be discussing who the convention is for. Joe Biden has a tough challenge ahead of him when it comes to uniting not just the Democratic Party ahead of the 2020 election, but also trying to bring in disaffected Republican voters who are unhappy with Trump and also the equally disaffected progressive uh, wing of his party, best embodied by his, his main challenger, Bernie Sanders. So, Emily, how do you think Biden is doing and that DNC is doing on that aim of bringing everyone together through this convention? Well, I think a lot of what they're doing at this convention so far is sort of a result of what we're seeing in the polls right now, is that this election is very much driven by dislike of Trump. And every election where there's an incumbent is in some sense a referendum on should that person be reelected and stay in power, but even more so when the highly unusual Trump presidency, who is also widely disliked by the American public. Um, We've never had a president quite like him. And so, especially um, with the coronavirus pandemic, keeping Biden and his campaign really away from a lot of media scrutiny and, and away from being at the forefront of what we'd normally be talking about, things are even more focused on Trump. And so I think what we've been seeing in the convention so far is yesterday, um, on, on Monday, we had really a, a discussion of 
Trump is bad. There was a lot of bashing Trump. Um, there was a lot of mention of the criticisms of what his administration is doing with the post office, which is a whole another topic of discussion. And then I think today um, was less about dislike of Donald Trump and a lot more of trying to unify the party. And you had um, people start saying, not only are we going to unify, but we're going to support Joe Biden. And so yesterday we saw a lot of reaching out to Republicans, hopes of reaching out to disaffected Republicans, some of that tonight as well, but a turn away from Trump a little bit into let's get excited about all getting together and backing Joe Biden. It's interesting you say that because uh, one of our writers, Amy Holmes, spoke to James Carville, who was obviously hugely successful in the Bill Clinton administration on Monday. And he said, in 2016, in retrospect, we talked about Trump way too much. If it just becomes an anti-Trump feeding frenzy, it's not going to help a lot. You sense a difference between the, the, two, the two nights we've seen so far. There was still a fair bit of Trump bashing and not that much talk of, you know, what Biden's policy platform is tonight, wouldn't you say? Sure. I don't think we've heard a lot of talk about policy platforms in general. These conventions are generally more of a spectacle. There's a lot of talk about feelings and uh, ideas of where we want to go rather than concrete examinations of policies. They're basically a week-long infomercial for the Democratic National Committee and for Joe Biden. There was one part tonight where I did feel like there was a better sense of going away from Trump bashing into a, an idea of maybe banding together and getting around Joe Biden. Uh, the, the, I mean, the convention being virtual obviously is a change for everybody, and it seemed a little bit awkward yesterday. Um, but today, there was one aspect of it that was, I thought, uh, kind of delightful when they had the normal roll call vote state by states. Normally, they would be on the convention floor and yell out their state's delegates and how many um, went to each candidate. And instead of being on the convention floor and it taking a really long time, you got to see this beautiful landscape of the country, beautiful, gorgeous backdrops, kind of a fun way to go on a tour of the country and in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic where we can't really go much of anywhere without being subject to two-week quarantine orders in a right. lot of states. So um, I agree there was still some Trump bashing, but there was a shift in tone. And then tomorrow we will see not only banding together around Joe Biden, but getting excited about Kamala Harris. Sure. I think you're, you're right to point out the virtual nature of the convention, because I didn't mention that at all in the previous eight minutes. And it's obviously for you, it's been a fairly different uh, shift in your job. You spent several of the last 12 months on the road following the Democratic primary campaign as it went around the country, and then very swiftly to not doing that. How would you say that, you know, that shift and, you know, everyone moving indoors for several months has affected your ability to do your job? How's it? How's that changed for you? Well, I definitely think it has changed in the way that everybody is covering Joe Biden in particular, because sure. he is a particularly gaff prone candidate. He 
will say things that are not scripted when he is in an in-person event or interacting with a voter who asks him a tough question or taking a question from a reporter who is shouting at him. Um, a lot of these little interactions that turn out to be extremely newsworthy and which get the public some information about maybe where he stands on a specific issue some, or something that's in the news, um, something that's going on, that uh, those sort of natural serendipitous interactions that you can't really have in a virtual campaign. And so that is something that I think a lot of porters are becoming much more aware about. We've even seen a lot of complaining among the press corps about um, Joe Biden not doing enough in-person, sit-down, tough interviews like President Trump is doing and how much longer can he get past that. Um, So in, in that sense, I think that's one of the biggest challenges of covering this campaign right now. Right, for sure. And obviously, it's working for Biden, because when it comes down to the states that are going to be significant in November, he is leading Trump in the polls narrowly in, you know, a lot of those places, like in the last week, CNBC polls put Biden four points ahead in Pennsylvania, four points ahead in Wisconsin, five points ahead in in Michigan. So do you think that that really wraps it up the pressure on Biden when he gives his speech on Thursday? I think that this speech is definitely huge for him. I mean, this is, uh, you know, a lot of people are not really paying attention to politics until right about this time. This is really kind of kicking off the election cycle in the minds of those voters who are going to prove to be most consequential in the election, who are going to decide to go one way or the other or decide to come out and vote for one candidate or the other. And so, um, of course, Donald Trump's campaign and Trump himself, you know, he calls him Sleepy Joe. They want him to look old and slow and not do that great of job in this speech. That's certainly the picture they're trying to make of him. And so if, if Biden lives up to that and he stumbles over his words, he looks like he's reading his notes, he's lacking in energy, there are going to be a lot of people who say, is this really somebody who can not only beat Trump, but has the capacity to be a robust leader in a time of crisis. Right. But um, on the other hand, the expectations might be so low for him right now that he will do a great job and surprise everybody and get rave reviews. Um, So that is one of the perhaps silver linings of being characterized in such a way that Joe Biden is right now. Speaking of oldness and slowness, obviously tonight the Democrats reeled out all of the ghosts of conventions past. You know, it was a overwhelmingly old and ex- yeah experienced. Let's be fair and say experienced lineup of speakers. You had former President Carter and his wife giving an address over the phone. You had former candidate and Secretary of State John Kerry really bashing Trump on foreign policy, which is particularly interesting given you know the developments with the. UAE Israel peace deal over the last couple of weeks, but then also perhaps most notably and most controversially, Bill Clinton was speaking tonight. What did you make of Bill Clinton's address and the line he took? Do you think that the concerns around Clinton speaking are warranted? Well, I will say that Bill Clinton's speech was definitely upstaged by a bunch of discussion about whether he should even be giving a speech at the Democratic National Convention in light of us now being in a post 
Me Too era and the numerous allegations of sexual misconduct against Bill Clinton. And of course, there was a photo released today, the day he was speaking, from one of uh, Jeffrey Epstein's accusers giving him a massage, even though she says there was nothing that Bill Clinton did that was um, untoward. (laughs) She described him as a perfect gentleman, I believe was the the phrase that he used. Would you say that he gave a perfectly gentlemanly address to the DNP tonight? (laughs) Well, I think, um, you know, as far as his address goes, I think that he had some good lines in there. Um, He definitely showcased why voters liked him um, when he was campaigning in the 90s. He had a, a funny line. I don't remember exactly, but about if you want somebody who's going to be on Twitter someday, then he's your guy but if not then whatever you said hours a day watching tv and zapping people on social media exactly which obviously is a very it's a very hip and technical term to refer to tweeting i think (laughs) well i like that zapping people on social media well i thought there were a couple lines like that that he had that came off pretty well the speech in itself though i think was definitely overshadowed by a whole bunch of people not thinking that he should represent the party anymore, which is a pretty interesting development given that he still has a pretty high popularity rating in in itself. But um, it represents a shift in the party that people are ready to move on to newer figures like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There was a poll that showed that Democratic voters were more excited about her speaking than Bill Clinton tonight. Ultimately, do you think that speaks to generational shift and that you know having clinton speak there's a, the reason for that is that it speaks to baby boomers who we know vote in elections whereas him not speaking would be more to appease you know people of a gen z millennial type generation who we don't know whether they turn out yet or not yeah i well i think it'd be strange for the democrats to not give every one of their former presidents a courtesy slot speaking at the democratic national convention if they told him that he couldn't speak, that would certainly be strange. Jimmy Carter, his address was a little bit sad because uh, it seemed like he is very old and they weren't able to sh- actually show him on screen and they just had him and his wife um, do an audio address. Right. But that's sort of a courtesy that you have is a slot for former presidents. But given the backlash that he received this year, perhaps next time around, Clintons might decide to step aside. Right, for sure. It is obviously very weird that, you know, anyone listening to this podcast could basically have the same experience that we have as of this <laughs> convention as, as political reporters. But one of the interesting things as well, like obviously the second night has only just finished, so it's too early to have viewing figures. But on the first night of the uh, the Democratic convention, when you compare uh monday the monday of 2020 to the monday of 2016 in 2016 25.7 million people watched the 2016 dnc which obviously is a full convention with people clapping balloons in an arena whereas even though everyone's been you know confined indoors and it's at a slightly different time of the year the viewership numbers have gone down it's it's down to 18.7 million so that's 7 million person drop off in viewership How would you explain that? Do you think that that's an indictment of Biden and the enthusiasm he's generating as a candidate or? 
I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I would say that it's probably a combination of a couple things. One, the viewership of television is just going down in general. There's not very many things that people tune in for on live television anymore. There are a lot of people that don't even really have regular television anymore. And there's a lot of younger people who are streaming anything, everything. And unless they have a subscription or using something where they can watch this live there, or they decide they really want to turn into YouTube, I'm not sure if that was included in your metrics, but um, that's how they're going to watch it. And there's also been a lot of discussion among some Democratic strategists that this might be a good way. And actually, Biden mentioned that there might be some aspects of what we have from this uh, virtual convention that the Democrats should use in the future, because it allows people to tune in in this two-hour period, rather than having a several-hour drawn-out thing where there's a lot of dead air and a lot of time with commentators going back and forth. You can just tune in, maybe see what's going on and then maybe tune out. And then it also um, has a a lot of really high production values to create sort of quick clips that can go around on social media. It will be interesting to see if there's a way that we can measure which of those clips get distributed widely, if there are any moments that go viral that people end up talking about more because they were either better produced or more highly successful. And so um, it's also saving the Democrats a lot of money (laughs) Um, to not have to bring everybody together for this. But we could be at a brewery in Milwaukee right now, and we aren't. That's my point. You know, my personal view is I would love to be at both conventions right now or go on a vacation anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, so the, the last speech of tonight was Jill Biden, who, despite being, you know, second lady for eight years, I feel like it hasn't really been that mainstream of political figure in the US over the last 20 years. This was, you know her giving an an address, the closing address for the Tuesday night, for a lot of people would be the first time where they, they got to see her and get a sense of what she was about. How did you think that she did? How do you think that she sold herself as a first lady tonight? Well, I think her role here was not really to convince voters to vote for her husband, but to give them a better idea of who he is um, as as a person, which is a big part of selling him as a candidate, getting people to understand who he is in his private life. They're trying to say that Joe Biden is a nice, decent, honorable man. And and her description about how he really found his faith and persevered and buckled down after enduring so much personal tragedy in his life and how she feels when she got together with Joe Biden and the kind of bonds that they have and her testament as a person who's a school teacher who continued teaching even throughout her tenure as first lady, which was um, something that hadn't really been done before that for a second lady, excuse me, second lady keeps working throughout that time. Joe Biden supported that. So that is a her role there is to really create that emotional appeal and, and humanize him. And I think she very successful in that tonight. Do you think that I said finally, but I'm going to ask one more question. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you think that there's a, despite the political nature of, of Michelle Obama's speech on Monday night, which has been described as you know, the most direct attack that she's ever made on, on Donald Trump. Do you think that there's a sense of 
the appeal of both women where they openly say, I hate politics. I, they don't really see them view themselves as political figures. Do you think that pushing that apolitical nature is in itself you know, a, a, a hidden political appeal to people who don't learn politics, if that makes sense? I, I, yeah, no, I definitely think so. And I don't think they would be saying that if they didn't think that there were people who think of themselves as apolitical who are watching this convention and trying to appeal to those people to say, hey, this is the time where you need to vote where you need to step up and here's why. And I'm not political either, but I'm doing it and I'm likable and I'm relatable. And so therefore follow me and also vote. I think that's definitely a, a strategy that they're using. I find it hard to believe that both women after being married to men who uh, are at the highest levels of government for decades um, are completely apolitical. But that's the selling point they're trying to push across. I think we might have accidentally answered my first question as well. But we've yeah. we talked about <laughs> we talked about who this convention is for, and it's for people who people who are bored of politics. Emily, thank you so much for making the time to speak to me, and uh, best of luck on reporting on the rest of the convention.